Hey guys. <clears throat> so, last October, um, I was hanging out with Tanner and John and getting off the tee, getting ready to go fly back to Louisville, uh, where I live currently. Um, and Tanner said, oh, you know, by the way, can you preach? And I was like, yeah, 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 we can. I, can, I can preach, like, are you able to preach? Um, and so every time I've come up here since then, it was kind of poked him like, hey, you know, do you need anybody to, to preach? Um, and so, you know, I knew he was coming up here for kids' games, and I just sent him a text message one day, and he was like, yeah, I, I, think, I think we could work that out. I think you could do that. And um, so he told me, you know, hey, we'll be in the book of Titus, and I, I shared that with my wife, and we kind of laughed about it, because, you know, the book of Titus, um, it's not one people normally turn to. I mean, if you, your pew Bible, like, like that's it, right? It's two pages. Um, and so, you know, we've always kind of had this little inside joke about things that sound like they're Bible sayings, like God helps those who help themselves and stuff like that. We've been like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's in the Bible. It's, a, it's in the book of Titus. And so uh, now I actually have to come up here and tell you what really is in the book of Titus um, instead of just joking. So today the, the passage is going to be Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, it's qualifications for elders. Um, and if you want to go ahead and turn there, it's 98 in your pew Bible. So I was reading this study a while back, um, and it was talking about you know this this phenomenon of the last cookie. And how many of you guys have ever noticed like the last cookie conundrum? Like you buy uh, a bag of cookies, little Keebler cookies with little three M and M's in them, um, and everybody's eating them, and you're just kind of grabbing them as you're going around. And and then all of a sudden you get down to the last cookie, and that's like the cookie that all the bugs have been crawling on or somebody dropped or something. For some reason, nobody wants to eat the last cookie in, in the batch. Um, and so it just sits there and gets hard and stale. And eventually somebody just has to say, I'm going to eat this cookie or I'm going to throw this away because this is, it's silly. Um, and so there was this, this study done at Stanford University where they took a whole bunch of people, they broke them up into groups of, of three, and they put them to work on a task. And about half an hour into the task, um, a researcher walked in with a plate with five cookies on it. Um, and so they, they went about it and they did the study and, and, and it turns out the cookies were, were the study. Okay? The cookies were the study, not this task that they gave them. And what they found was that in the overwhelming majority of these groups, of these groups of three, there was one cookie left on the plate. Nobody wanted to eat the last cookie. Um, which kind of verifies nobody wants to eat the last cookie, but, but that wasn't really the interesting thing, because see, there were five cookies, groups of three, last cookie was left, okay, and I, I know it's early for math, I, I teach math about this time um, at, for my day job, um, and I know that people don't like doing math at, at 10 o'clock in the morning, but four cookies, three people, somebody ate an extra cookie, and the overwhelming majority of these groups, somebody ate an extra cookie. And so then the question becomes, who ate the extra cookie? Right? Was it, you know, it was probably the, the chunky kid. You know, he was hungry, he, he wanted an extra cookie. Um, but what they found, they went back, they looked at it, and, and in, in most of these cases, when four cookies were eaten, when somebody ate an extra cookie, the person who ate the extra cookie was the leader. The, the group leader ate a second cookie. Now you might be saying, oh, of course, this is, this is obvious, right? Leaders are type A personalities, driven people. You know, they, they'll say, there's an extra cookie, and I know that we can't all have another cookie, but I want it, and I'm going to go get it. You know, I'm, that's my cookie. I'm just going to take it, because I'm a leader. That, that's who I am, 
right? Good observation. However, turns out the leaders of these groups were chosen at random. Um, sure, the leader might have been that type A driven, you know, your leader type person, but the leader could just as well have been a, a passive, you know, kind of back of the room, let everything go by, you know, person. It, it didn't matter. The leaders were chosen at random. And so the conclusion was it wasn't the, the personality type that led these leaders to get the extra cookie because they were only the leader by, by designation. Instead, it was the title. This was the group leader, and something about being called the leader, something about knowing that they were leading this group, led these people to feel entitled to something more. They felt entitled to an additional cookie because they were the leader. The leader's more important. They do, they do more work, so they get more reward, and their reward here was, was a cookie. It's tiny, but that's their reward for being the leader. Um, and, and we've seen this, right? We've seen this, the whole Wall Street CEO scandals, you know, leaders taking taking too much. They feel entitled to too much. This is kind of a, a symptom, um, a sickness almost, of, of leadership in our culture. However, if we're talking about leadership for Christians, our example for leadership, first and foremost, should be Christ. And, and Christ says a lot about leadership in the Gospels, uh, but in particular, if we look at Mark 10, 45, he says this. He says, uh, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anyone ever in the history of the world was entitled to anything, it was Jesus. Son of God, God in the flesh, perfectly holy, was entitled to everything. Paul talks about this. He was entitled to everything, and yet he didn't, he didn't take it. The Son of Man came not to be served, not to cash in his entitlement, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we talk about Christian leadership, this, this is our picture, right? This is what we should be looking at. This is what leadership should be modeling itself after. And when we read here in Titus, as Paul is talking to his brother Titus about leadership in the church, this is kind of in the background. This is, this is informing it. What was Jesus? How was Jesus? What did he look like? And, and Paul's going to work this out in practical terms for Titus as he's talking with him about the, the appointing and the, the choosing of leadership for the local churches here in Crete. So if you'll turn with me to Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. Again, it's 998 in your pew Bible. This is what it says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might appoint what remained, and so that you might put what remained in order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in some doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So this is what Paul says to Titus at the beginning of the book of Titus. He's talking with them about the appointment, the choosing of elders for the church, and these are the qualifications he gives them. And, and what I want to argue today is that, that Paul here is saying church leadership is essential. And in all its appearances, in all, all practical matters, this leadership should reflect Christ. So if you'll pray with me real quick. 
Father, we just thank you today that we can open your word. We thank you that you have recorded in your word um, things like this, you know, list of, of what we should look for for leaders. This is important to us. This is important to us as a church in our everyday practice. Uh, and I pray that you would just help us to see, God, um, what it is that you put before us as, as fit um, for leadership and, and what we should be looking for as we appoint leaders in our churches. Uh, Father, I pray that you'll be with me today, Lord, as I preach, God. Let my words be your words. Um, pray that ears will be open, God, and that, that you will just be moving in this place today. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So, church leadership is essential, and in all appearances, it should reflect Christ. Um, real quick, I want to note, this isn't the only passage in the New Testament dealing with church leadership. And, and though we want to deal with this passage we need to keep in mind that, that we have at least one other passage, probably two, that are really good for us for looking at the qualifications of an elder. Um, one of those would be 1 Timothy 3, uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, and also 1 Peter 5. Um, and so, you know, we won't really go to those very much, but they're kind of there in the background and they can help us illuminate um, some of the places where maybe it's not quite as clear what Paul is saying here to Titus. Um, so we, we want to kind of keep those in the back of our mind as well as we're reading this, and we will um, at least refer to them once or twice as we're going. Um, but, but our focus here, our focus is going to be Titus 1, 5 through 9. Um, and the first thing I want us to see here in Titus is that he says church leadership, elders, right, pastors, are important, okay? Um, beginning of verse 5, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Um, so Paul, Paul was an apostle. He was a missionary. We just heard from Kevin. Paul desired to go where the name of Christ had not been preached. And he did that, and he did that well, and the Lord blessed him, and he was very successful. And he saw people come to faith, and he saw them starting to gather and then what happens is once people come to faith, once they become Christians and they start to gather, then they become churches, and those churches then need leadership. And what Paul is saying here, he says, I, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. This, this order that was necessary here, uh, among other things, um, but, but kind of foremost on Paul's mind, was, was the selection of, of elders, of elders leaders for the church. Um, you know, what happened, I guess, was Paul had to leave before he could take care of that, because we do see other places in the New Testament where Paul actually did this himself. Um, but Paul had to leave Crete before he could take care of that, and yet he said, it's necessary. These churches need this, all right? Um, a church without elders, a church without leadership, is incomplete. Um, and, you know, we actually have people these days who want to say, no, any type of authority any type of leadership or hierarchy, that's, that's from sin. Um, if we really want to be a holy people, we don't need leaders. We don't need people standing in front of us preaching to us. And um, we don't need, you know, this, this whole kind of sinful hierarchy because that's just corruption. Um, but the reality is, and we really can't go into this today, that's, that's just an inaccurate picture of what we see. Um, in the Bible, there is leadership, there is authority before the fall before sin enters the world, and there is leadership and authority after Christ returns and, and the new heavens and the new earth are established. Um, so there is nothing inherently sinful about authority. It reflects the Trinity. It reflects who God is. Right? There is hierarchy. Um, and so we don't want to ignore this. We don't want to have churches where we don't have leaders, where we don't have pastors. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, that would be a, a great gig for 
for me, you know, it's be great for Tanner and John. I mean, if you don't have to lead, if everybody's just kind of doing their own thing, I just walk in and say, hey, um, today, Titus 1, 5 through 9, let's talk about it. What do you think? Um, and that's what church looks like. I mean, that's, that's ideal, right? That's much easier. Um, but, and maybe preferable to some people, um, but that's not the picture that we get. Uh, leadership is important. Elders are important. Um, the second thing we see here is that elders are appointed, okay? Um, we're not given a, a picture of people coming in and saying, all right, I'm the elder, gather around me, church. I mean, this, this is typically a cult, right? Um, this is how people wind up drinking Kool-Aid, is when um, somebody comes in and appoints themselves as a leader over a group of people, right? The picture we see here is that the, the elders are appointed. It says, and, and appoint, in, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So they're appointed... And, and not just that, but it's not some willy-nilly criteria. Um, we don't look at them and say, all right, who most accurately reflects Steve Jobs? You know, who's, who's the best CEO in this town? Who is um, scoring highest on these personality inventories? Right, that's not what we look at, okay? Paul says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There's this criteria that's set forth that Paul has been using to identify the leaders, to identify the elders for these churches. And he's shared this with Titus. And then later on, as we see, he's actually going to share it more with us, what this criteria is. All right? Um, and so we need to be cognizant of that. We don't need to be going around um, having churches that, that look in their leadership like the world. Right? Um, and, and we're guilty of that. We have churches where the people who are running the show are the, the businessmen, are the, the CEOs, are the lawyers. You know, we have, we have the people who are rich and powerful and in control in the world, and we say, oh yeah, those are the people who should be rich and powerful and in control in the church. Um, but that's just not, not the way it is. That's not the picture that we have in the Bible. We are given a list of criteria, and that is, that is our guide. If the Bible is our authority, if the Bible is our sole, you know, our sole manual, our sole uh, book, for, for practice that we should be following as we establish churches, then, then what it says here is what we should be going by and not, not popular psychology, not who the best leaders are according to Harvard Business Review, right? Um, so leaders are to be appointed. And, and it could look here like Titus is doing this in isolation, right? It could look like Paul is saying, Titus, go to these cities, pick men, put them over the churches, right? Find the leaders and, and place them there yourself. However, if we look throughout the New Testament, and even if we look at these criteria, we see that, that that's not the case, that the churches, the churches need to be intimately involved in the selection of their leadership. Okay? We see this um, in the selection of deacons in Acts 6. Um, but also here, I mean, look at these criteria. Above reproach, right? these, these personality characteristics. These aren't things that Titus is going to know necessarily about these people, but he's going to go around to the town and he's going to say, hey, here's what church leadership should look like. Who, who fits this? You know, who among you meets these criteria? And the, and the people are going to talk, and they're going to identify the, the leaders from among themselves. Right? And, and this, you know, this past week, the Southern Baptist Convention met, and, and this, hopefully I'm not spilling the beans, but is a Baptist church, and part of being Baptist is the idea of congregationalism, um, that churches make the decisions, that the leadership comes from the bottom up. And so, um, you know, we don't have somebody coming around just saying, this is your leader, right? And even here, you know, Tanner and John, um, you know, they worked 
and they, they started this work and were led to do this, but, but then they came to you guys and said, all right, we need you to confirm us as your leaders. You know, we don't want to just kind of be in control. We don't want to be cult you know, leaders. We want this to be um, agreed upon and confirmed and established from within, from the body. And this is, this is important, right? And, and, and this is why we have these requirements, why we have these considerations in Titus and in First Timothy, is they're given to the church so that the church can see what they should be looking for. Um, we don't have apostles like Titus running around anymore, and we're not given any criteria for selecting new apostles. Um, so, so we have to be thinking about congregationalism, the church appointing their leaders from within, confirming the men who have been called to be their pastors, their leaders. Right. Um, also, we see here that, that more than one elder is appointed. Um, and, and it can be tricky. We're looking at it says an appoint elders in every town. It's like, is that multiple people in every town? Or is that just a whole bunch of people, like one per town? Um, but I think as we, as we look through this and as we get into the original language and we do stuff that's a little more boring, um, we see that, that what he's talking about here are multiple people in each town. Um, and, and a good thing to do is look and see, where do we see this in the Bible? Do we see this modeled for us in the Bible? And what, our, what I would argue is yes. We see this modeled for us in Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem, Acts 6, you know, they're talking about the leaders, and it's the elders. You know, these are these apostles leading the church. There are multiple men leading the church in Jerusalem. And I think this is the pattern that's set out and followed for the remainder of the churches that are established and should be followed today. That's why Tanner and John are the elders here. Um, and I know this is somewhat controversial, but I think this, this is just the pattern that we see in the New Testament. I think this is um, what we should be following today. It's multiple people leading the church. Um, and then the term we would say here is existent plurality, uh, plurality of elders in the church. So. We see that elders are important. We see that elders are appointed. And now we get to the real meat of this, what people normally go to Titus 1, 5 through 9 for, is elders are qualified. And, and what is it that makes these, makes these people qualified? Um, and the first thing I want to say here is these are necessary conditions. Um, these, aren't, these aren't the only conditions. It's not if you see somebody who meets these things, make them an elder, right? Uh, check it off. Oh yeah, you meet them all. Boom. Now you are an elder of Redemption Hill Church. Now you're an elder of uh, Sojourn Community Church, wherever. You know, now you are an elder because you meet these criteria. No. These are considerations that we need to be looking at among other things, but, but if a person does not meet these, we need to say no. You know, you either need to grow or, or we need to wait. You're not you're not fit, you're not called to be an elder. Um, so these are some necessary conditions. Um, also, what do we see? We see that Christ is the head of the church. Elders are, are leading in his place and are meant to be reflecting Christ. And, and they're supposed to be reflecting Christ to their people. And so these are criteria um, that most of them are, are good criteria for us to just be looking for as everyday believers as well. Um, you know, the, the ones about teaching at the end, you know, maybe, um, you know, those would be great, but, but those might be more specific for elders, but, but everyone in the church should be, you know, above reproach, um, you know, faithful children, hospitable. I mean, these are just good 
characteristics for the Christian life. You know, this is a picture of a, of a just a good, faithful Christian that we see here in, in Titus 1. And so um, we also want to think about that. You know, how, how can I grow, even though I might not be called to be an elder, how can I grow to be more like this? Because in being more like this, I'm being more, more like Christ. Um, so that's a, a second consideration we want to have here as we're reading through these. So um, elders are qualified. We have three kind of um, movements in this. The first one is kind of the elder's general rep reputation. He's going to give us kind of the general reputation for an elder. And then he's going to get into some list, you know, specifically what he is not, and specifically what the elder is not, and then specifically what he is. Um, so we'll begin with the general reputation. And this is verse 6. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So the first thing that we see here is, if, if anyone is above reproach. Um, Calvin defined this as, one who is marked by no disgrace that would lessen his authority. Um, so we're talking about a man who, who when things are said about him, when, when, when accusations are brought against him, there's no question as to whether or not he's innocent. Right? We don't want someone who we're, we're sometimes hesitant. You know, is this, is this guy on the up and up? You know, do, we, do we have character issues here? You know, is, is this a time bomb that might get us in trouble? You know, we want someone who's above reproach, who people can't come up and, and say things against and, and thus lose confidence in them. Right? And this is very, very important. And we've seen this. We've seen this in, in churches all over the place, that when, when charges are brought against them, when, when their integrity is questioned, it not only harms that church, not only destroys that ministry, it harms the gospel. Because as we see in, in verse 7 here, it says, as God's stewards, right? The elders are God's stewards. They're protecting, they're protecting his church, and they're protecting the gospel, okay? And when things come against that elder, those things harm the gospel. Um, a criticism against elders runs deep to the heart of the message that they claim to represent. And so this idea of being above reproach is, is very, very important. It's the very first kind of just general reputation characteristic that we need to be looking for in an elder. Um, the second thing we read here, um, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. Um, and this is one of the fun ones. Um, but um, let's, let's break this down. Um, first thing, husband of, of one wife. Um, the idea here is of a singular spousal commitment. Um, you know, we want someone who is committed to their spouse. Um, why? Well, because marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. And Christ is, is ever faithful to his church, is ever faithful to his people, is ever there to protect them. And so the elder is his representative, as, as, the, as the person in place of Christ during this time. He should be he should be protecting and caring for that body. And how are we going to know if he's going to care for and protect that body and then be committed to that body? Well, a great indicator for us is if he is, if he is there to care for and protect and love and be committed to his wife. Right? If we don't see this modeled in the home, if we don't see this in his, in his marital relationship, how can we trust that this is going to happen in his relationship with the church, his relationship as an elder over the church? Um, and so of one wife, a singular Spousal commitment here is very important. Um, second, and this is where it gets ugly, <clears throat> it's the husband 
of one wife. And this reads in the Greek, and, and you're not supposed to do this, but it reads in the Greek, of one wife man. And a lot can be made of the Greek where we say, um, oh, you know, Greek language is really pliable. We can do a lot of stuff with it. There are words for, for wife and husband and man and woman in Greek, and they're very specific words. And, and here he's saying, of one wife, man. Um, and I would say he's doing this to make the point that elders should be, should be men. Um, that the, the, the qualification for an elder is to be a man. And, and yeah, um, <laughs> I know that this is not popular with today, with our culture, but, but this is... I'm just trying to be faithful to what the text says. And I mean, there's only two ways to read this. Either that or either Paul allows for female elders and the singular spousal commitment is not necessarily a concern for, for female elders. Um, and I, I think that that, you know, you'd just be reading a lot into the text to, to put that on it. So of one wife, man says that, says that men are, are who should be elders. And this is not a sexist thing. This is not a, you know, women can't lead. You know, men, men always know best. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this, and I'll leave that to Tanner and John to flesh out with you guys, but, but I feel if we're, <laughs> if we're being um, just faithful to the text here, that is, that's what we read. Um, one more thing to say, and I think this is really important in, in the kind of a context where we have a lot of Catholic churches and a lot of ex-Catholics or maybe in current Catholics, um, this, this says that it's okay to be married and be an elder. Um, it doesn't say you have to be. Right? This, this doesn't say um, must be married, but it's, but it's like, if he's married, we want this man to have a singular spousal commitment. Um, so, so marriage is good. Um, we should not prohibit marriage for elders, but we also shouldn't require marriage for elders. This is, this is an open thing. All right? this, is, this is something that, that is there, that if God's called that person to be married, great. If he's not, great. But neither one of those is, is going to be a qualification for being an elder. Um, and we see that around us, that that, that has really hurt um, you know, brothers in the Catholic Church because marriage is a great thing. I would say the majority of people want to be married. Um, and, and if we cut people off from service of the Lord because of that, um, I think that we're stepping outside of, of what the scripture calls us to. So marriage is, is okay, it's wonderful. Be married, be an elder, good stuff. All right, um, so above reproach, husband of one wife. And then, again, it gets a little ugly. Um, it says, children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, what I think would be better for us to say here is children are faithful. And there's a lot of question over this verse. Some of your translations might actually say um, children are faithful or children are obedient. Um, I'm reading from the ESV here, um, and it's a great translation. And, and they have, in some, some ESV Bibles, there's a footnote here that says children are faithful. But I think we can clear this up if we go to 1 Timothy. Because um, 1 Timothy parallels this passage, like we already said. And this is what 1 Timothy, uh, this is what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy about, about children. He says, The elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so I would say here the requirement isn't that uh, the elders' children must be believers, that they must be confessing Christians, but that they must be faithful, that they must be obedient, that they must respect their father's authority in the house. Because again, as it says, if he's not 
If he's not able to manage his own household, if his own children aren't obedient, his own children don't respect him as a leader and as an authority figure, how will the church be able to respect him as a leader and as an authority figure? Um, and so, again, this is a, a lot of talk about this one, but I think that the best way to, to read this would be children are faithful, they're obedient. The child's, you know, the, the elder isn't letting his children run around. The children aren't being, you know, arrested, uh, getting caught at parties, drinking. You know, they're not bringing, you know, charges and repute to, ill repute to the, to the elder. They're not harming his image because, again, this is almost a, an issue of above reproach, right? Um, what type of elder, what type of leader can he be if he can't control his children, if his children are running around doing these things, getting in this type of trouble? Um, and so that's really what I think Paul is getting at when he's talking here um, to Titus about, about how the, the household, how the children of, of an elder should look in general. Um, so, general reputation, he should be above reproach, husband of one wife, children are faithful. And now we get into just kind of the lists. You know, specifically what he is not, and then we'll say specifically what he is. Okay, so specifically what he is not, verse 7, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So specifically what he's not. First, he is not arrogant. Um, you know, he's not uh, building himself up. You know, the man who is arrogant thinks more of himself than of others um, and is more likely to speak in ways that will increase his fame and not God's. You know, the man who is arrogant wants to get up in front of a big crowd and, and, and be powerful and, and, you know, he'll go around boasting, oh, you know, I have this many people in my church. I'm, you know, I have this great impact on the community. Um, you know, it's all about me, you know, my kingdom. What am I doing? And the elder, as one who is reflecting Christ, as one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, this is about others, not about arrogant, not about building oneself up, right? The, the elder should be, should be practicing humility. Um, so, so this is a very important qualification. Second, not quick-tempered. Okay, so this would be, you know, someone, an elder who, who just flies off the hook every time something little goes wrong. Uh, you know, their children are being disobedient, uh, and they just, you know, yell at them, start throwing coloring books around, right? I mean, this is, this is quick-tempered. You know, nothing turns people off more than someone who cannot control their temper, someone with a short fuse, right? And being an elder is a stressful job. Um, you know, you are, as a church, not always easy people to deal with, right? I deal with people all the time in Louisville at Sojourn that I'm like, this is really frustrating. Um, you know, we have um, people that, that week by week we're getting emails from and just trying to, to shepherd and pastor. And it's frustrating because they don't seem to get it. Um, and, and if you're quick-tempered and you get an email like that at, at six o'clock in the morning from, from a, a sheep, from a church member who, who is not getting the picture and who is continuing to just kind of wallow in their own uh, sinfulness and you just, all right, that's it, I'm done with you. You know, this is the type of stuff that I just hate dealing with and sin. You know, what have you done, right? Keep your cool, not quick-tempered, able to deal with those stressful situations. Because again, this, this just 
immediately can kill a gospel witness um, if, 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 a, if a man is quick-tempered. Um, not a drunkard, all right? Um, this one, again, we don't want to go too far. It's not a prohibition of drinking, okay? And even if we look at 1 Timothy 5, right after Paul is telling Timothy about qualifications for an elder, he even maybe suggests that it might be good for him to have a little bit every once in a while to deal with his nerves. Um, this is not a prohibition of drinking, but it's a prohibition of, of drunkenness. We don't want a man who, when he gets those stressful emails, when he deals with those stressful church members, he, he turns to the bottle, right? We don't want a man who um, is, is, you know, getting uh, drunk and, and going out and driving home from church picnic, um, you know, loading up on a few of the church softball games. That's not the picture, right, that we want of an elder. We want to see one, a man who has self-control, who is not um, dependent upon alcohol or, or other substances to, to um, take the load off um, and to, to ease him of his burdens. Um, because we want a man who's dependent upon God, who's trusting in God, and, 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 and if a man is characterized by drunkenness, um, this, is, this is quickly going to hinder his ability to, to lead well. Um, not violent. This goes even further on the quick-tempered. Um, a friend of mine always says, not pugnacious. It's kind of an old-school translation, this. One who's quick to get into arguments. Um, so this would be even more personal. Um, you know, someone who's, who's very confrontational. Um, we, don't, we don't want that, because again, that will hurt, hurt the reputation of the gospel. And, and, and lastly, not greedy for gain. Um, here we can refer to 1 Peter 5. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Right? This is, this is a job, sure. Being an elder is a job, right? But it's not a job you go into for the money. It's not a job that you should be concerned about the money. You know, um, pastors throughout time have worked second jobs, third jobs to be able to make it. When you said, why are you doing that? Just go get a normal job where you can make an easy living. And yet this is, this is further than that. This is beyond that. Because the call to gospel ministry is great, and it's not about making money. And if the man gets into it, and, and I know people who, who look at it as a vocation. This is what I do for a living. And I go and I get my paycheck from the church, and I'm a good preacher, and, and this, is, this is how I, I make my living. But that's not the focus. And we all know these stories of greedy pastors who, who get caught you know, with their hand, go back to cookies, with their hand in the cookie jar, right? And, and this, is, this is just horrible. It destroys, destroys the witness of the church. So not greedy for gain. So specifically what he is not, and then kind of our last part, specifically what he is. Because it's not important, it's not just enough for him to not be things, but we want him to also be these positive uh, things, fill these positive characteristics. And so verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we don't need a ton of detail on these. Hospitable, um, someone who is able to open their house and willing to open their house. I came here in May, and for two of the nights that I was here in May with my little brother, we slept in Tanner's floor on his couch. You know, That's, that's what we're looking for, hospitable, opening up their home. Um, bringing in people, sharing what they have with others. Um, a lover of good, you know, someone who just desires goodness, who desires to see um, good done and not evil. 
uh, self-controlled. You know, that's, that's kind of the counter of quick-tempered, drunken, violent, right? We want, want a man who is self-controlled, exercising this fruit of the Spirit, holy, disciplined, um, you know, a pastor who's not disciplined, who is constantly putting together a sermon at the last minute, um, who, is, who is constantly um, having to be reminded, oh yeah, I was supposed to meet this person. Oh yeah, this, this person is in the hospital. I need to go see them, right? Disciplined. We, wanna, we want one who's there, who's able to care for the sheep and, and able to watch after them well. Um, so discipline is a huge deal. And, and honestly, it's probably one of the primary failings among young elders, um, guys I go to seminary with, you know, just training yourself in discipline to be, to be a good pastor, to be a good shepherd. Um, and then the one that really sets this Titus passage apart from 1 Timothy, um, holding firm to Scripture. So again, it says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So the big thing, the first thing this says is there is sound doctrine. There is good teaching. There is bad teaching. And it says, you know, this, this elder must have received good teaching, and he must know good teaching, and, and he must hold to good teaching. Um, Paul in 1 Timothy, he talks to, or sorry, 2 Timothy, he talks to, to Timothy and says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know, Paul, Paul wants to protect against this, right? Um, a while, you know, 10, 15 minutes ago, we talked about husband of one wife. That's one of those things, you know, itching ears. Our culture says um, anybody can be an elder. Anybody can be a leader, man, woman. It doesn't matter. Um, but if we're going to be firm, if we're going to be grounded in sound teaching, um, we have to say no, you know. It's not about the itching ears. It's not about um, whether people get upset and, and want to leave and get angry about that. It's about holding firm to sound doctrine, to the, to the trustworthy word that has been delivered to that elder, all right, and, and not, not going after those itching ears. Um, so he must hold firm to it. He must be able to give instruction. It's not just enough that he knows this stuff and that he has it here, but he's got to be able to give it to you guys like this, coming up on Sunday morning and preaching, right? Putting together curriculum for, for community groups, um, putting together, you know, VBS, putting together events where we can train and where we can learn. Um, he must be able to instruct in the sound doctrine to pass it on right? Pass it on to, to other believers. Um, he also must be able to rebuke false teachers. Um, Paul went to the Ephesian elders and he said, hey, the time is coming when wolves are going to come in among you and they're going to try and take away the sheep. They're going to, false teachers are going to come in and they are going to try and steal people away after them. And they're going to they're want to satisfy those itching ears and they're going to draw away God's people. And you must be ready. You must be prepared to knock them off, right? You must be armed with your shotgun and, and shoot that wolf, right? You must have sound doctrine and you must bring it and, and, and make sure that these false teachers are pointed out and that they're run off so that they don't harm the body so that as a good steward of God's sheep, you are protecting God's flock, God's sheep. Um, so able to rebuke false teachers. So this is our list here and, and this is Great, and these are practical considerations. But again, let's, let's pull back to Jesus, all right? Um, pull back to Jesus, and, and we see this encounter between Jesus and, and Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. This is what he says. He says, 
Uh, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend to my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven. He left men like Peter, Paul, Titus, Tanner, John, to, to feed the sheep, to protect the church, to be leaders, elders over the body. These are not Peter's people. Redemption Hill is not Tanner and John's possession, right? They don't own this. But they are, they are stewarding in place for Christ until he returns. And, and, and there is, there's a lot of qualifications we can look at. There's a lot of things we can talk about. But a huge one, a one we must not overlook, is what Jesus is saying here to Peter. He says, do you love me? And the elder, in his heart, above everything else, must love Christ. Because if he loves Christ, he's going to love the bride of Christ, the church. If he loves Christ, he's going to love Christ's people. He's going to love the sheep. He's going to want to take care of them. Right? And so we need to look for that. If, if a man, even if he fits all these criteria, you know, even if he seems like the greatest leader ever, if his heart is not 100% sold out on loving Jesus, then he's not going to desire to be like Jesus. He's not going to desire to protect Jesus' interest in the church. But if a man loves Jesus the way that Jesus is calling out Peter here and, and, and he says, you know, I love you more than anyone else, Father. I love you more than anyone else, Lord. Then he's going to desire to be this man. He's going to desire to be above reproach, husband of one wife, managing his household well, having faithful children, you know, fitting all these criteria. And he's going to want to tend the flock. He's going to want to feed the sheep. He's going to be a great pastor. Being an elder is, is so important. Church leadership is, is essential. And in all appearances, it should reflect Christ. And this is a great call, but even greater than this, because this is only for a few people. Right? Not everyone should desire to be a teacher. Not everyone should desire to be a pastor. But, but the call that goes out to everyone, man, woman, Greek, Jew, slave, free man, right? that stuff that they're talking about in Galatians, the one that goes out to everybody is the call to be a child of God. The gospel call, right? You're called to repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand, okay? Jesus came and he lived the life that you couldn't live, died the death that you should have died in your place so that, so that by faith you can receive salvation. When he says came to give his life as a ransom for many, that's what he's talking about, the gospel. And that goes out for everyone. And so, yeah, some of you might be called to be an elder, and you might stand up one day and say, you know, God's put this call on my heart, and that's great, and we'll look for a body to affirm it. Um, we'll look to see that you meet these characteristics, right? But the, the only characteristic, the only criteria for being a child of God is, is realizing your sin, is, is repenting of it, confessing Jesus as Lord, and coming in faith to the foot of the cross. And that's open to everyone without qualification today. So um, if 
Now, if that just strikes you, if, if you want to respond to that call, um, Tanner, John will be here, I'll be here. Talk with us, um, pray about it, think about it, because uh, this, this one is bigger. It's more important than elders. Uh, it's, it's, this is the difference between heaven and hell, life and death. Um, and, and we want to extend that to everyone today. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we could go through this text. It's not a terribly exciting text, but it is great to know um, what we should be looking for in our leaders, God. Um, thank you for Tanner and John, for their love for this body, God, um, for their desire to be like you and to, to tend the, the sheep well. Um, God, we thank you for your faithfulness and just bringing us your word that we might um, see what you would have for us to know in it every day. God, we thank you most of all for, for your son who you sent to die on the cross um, that we might be saved from our sins. We might have our relationship that's been broken with you restored and that we might uh, receive salvation. Uh, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.